Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 280, The Land Was Never So Full. Before I start, could I please ask for your help? Acast and I would like you please, pretty please, to fill out a survey if you wouldn't mind terribly. I would like to claim some terribly altruistic motive about improving the world, to seek out new worlds and boldly go, but sadly it is not. It is so that Acast and I can seek out new advertisers. does not mean there will be any more advertisers on the podcast, but hopefully it will mean more sponsors. Now, if you need to square this with your conscience, it will definitely be helping support me and the podcast. The survey says it takes less than two minutes. Personally, I think that's a marketing two minutes and actually you're looking at about seven and a half to be fair, but certainly no more than that. So I hope very much you will spare the time. Oh, and in thanks, I have put up two prizes for a prize draw. You can then enter if you complete the survey. An Elizabeth I silver sixpence and an Elizabeth I silver penny. Thank you in advance. You can find the link to the survey at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Now then, as promised, let us take a break from all the sparkle and drama of national politics and get our collective hands dirty in the muck of the common man, the daily grind, the struggle for survival. Let us scratch our heads at the theories of economic change and marvel at the reformation of manners. Let us walk the streets of parish politics. Or you might want to skip on a few episodes. I leave it to you. I must say that I have been feeling guilty for ages about my relentless focus on politics and religion without so much as a sideways glance at a farthingale or a doublet and hose. 
But as I came to write the following stuff and episodes, I did experience actually a wave of deja vu and figure that I have maybe included more of the economic and social stuff than actually I thought I had, sprinkled here and there like pixie dusk amongst the general dung of history. So, I offer a general apology for any hesitations, repetitions and duplications, but not for any deviations, since deviation is the very stuff of life, is it not? However, the thing is that there's a story to be told, and I really need to tell it from the bottom up, brick by brick, at least to a degree. So again, you might like to skip forward to Elizabeth, walking through the streets of London to claim her crown, laughing and joking and playing to the crowd. But of course, you and I know that all that glitter is just a deck chair on the cruise ship of history. The beating heart, the engine room, is 30 decks down amongst the heat, oil, grime and noise, or alternatively in historical terms, in the history of population. Generally speaking, by the way, I will stick to the period leading up to and including the 1550s in the episodes that follow, though I'll often give you pointers to what's going to come after that. And I have to say, I have often wavered from this rule. But hopefully, you'll see where and when that happens. So this is for two reasons, focusing on up to 1550. Firstly, I want to avoid confusion when we get back to politics. And secondly, I don't want my head to explode. There is a line of thought that all these political and religious decisions and individual viewpoints and actions and influences are all totally irrelevant. Window dressing just to make us feel better and as though we've got some sort of control. And that in fact, we are all just flotsam, carried along by the wave of history that is population change. I exaggerate for effect, of course, which I'm prone to do, but nonetheless, population change would fundamentally change English society at a few points in its story. To back up this claim, we need look no further than the catastrophe of the Black Death and the fundamental changes that wrought. At the other end, historians have tracked a correlation between the population growth of the 16th century and a rise in indictments for crime, in the severity of the reformation of manners, in the spike in riot and rebellion in 1549. But I'm getting ahead of myself and selling you the sizzle before I've even described the sausage. As far as sausages are concerned, I think we should go all the way back to the great sausage maker himself, Thomas Malthus, the political economist and demographer. Our Thomas lived between 1766 and 1835, but despite his age, I've always had a bit of a personal relationship with the lad. I learned about Malthus on my very first day at big school. Sun shining through the metal windows, exercise book clean, fresh and new and unspoiled as yet by my poor handwriting and unreasonably low marks. I can remember it as though it was yesterday. Obviously, you don't want to know about that, but I mentioned Malthus because of his still relevant, though much amended and pursued, theory of population change. As I'm sure you know, Malthus built a theory that population had a tendency to outstrip the resources available, that those resources were essentially finite or at least inflexible, and that therefore when this happened, disaster, death and destruction ensued, sometimes accompanied by punk bands. Well, actually, Malthus didn't put it that way. What he actually said was that when population outstripped resources, the result would be positive checks, which is your political economist's way of describing death, misery, decay and disaster. Probably not punk rock. Positive checks, I expect, carry no moral connotation, simply that something happens, a famine, an epidemic, 
a lot of death basically which returns the population to a situation in line with the available resources. However, slightly more positively, or negatively maybe, in this world turned upside down, Malthus also suggested that there might be preventative checks. Society might deploy preventative checks to stop getting to the stage where positive checks take place. For example, people might stop having so many children for some reason. Let's not have sex tonight, darling. I think there's a real danger of our Malthusian positive check on the way. A joke which doesn't feel quite so funny anymore, what with climate change and all. Okay, so hold that thought and let's apply that model to 16th century England. There was in England an absolutely whopping project from Cambridge University that went on for over a decade designed to nail this issue of population. And since Thomas Cromwell, patron saint of the ancestry business, ordered parish registers to be maintained on all births, deaths and marriages there is a more solid body of evidence to build on from the 1530s. The conclusions were that the late medieval England was a time of a stagnant population. The population in the 1520s appears to have been around 2.4 million, which spookily was pretty much that suggested by the 1377 poll tax, 150 years earlier of course. I've seen some estimates going even lower than 2.4 million actually. So, That is a long period of stagnation, leading to a whole load of discussions about why the recovery to the Black Death in population was so slow to appear. However, in the 1520s, something awoke in the deep. Rumours were heard in Isengard and the statistics began to stir. The population rose to 2.8 million by the 1540s from 2.4 million. By the 1550s, it was close to 3.2 million. That is some growth. As we heard with Mary, there was then a dip before population growth resumed after 1560 with renewed enthusiasm. And by the 1580s, the mercury had passed 3.6 million, then 4.1 million in 1600, and by 1640, 5.3 million. You may well have the memory of industrial revolution in your mind and assume that the population then just keeps on going in an S-club reach for the stars, but not yet. Population then levels out for another 100 years before we get that next particular transformation. This is important, actually, though I can actually hear how dull I am becoming about population figures. These changes fit into a general and quite Malthusian and traditional structure of growth, stagnation, fall. Growth, stagnation and fall, and so on. It is a pre-modern profile. It is also, it should be noted, a European-wide phenomenon. However, don't let that fool you. This is still dramatic stuff. For long periods, the growth rate in population was over 1%, and in the word of the historian Keith Wrightson, these are exceptional rates of growth for any pre-modern population. At these levels, population growth was not a hidden phenomenon. People noticed it. They saw the impact all around them. It worried them. William Harrison, a contemporary 16th century commentator, marvelled at it. The impact was so obvious. And he wrote, Such increase of people that the land was never so full. If you are interested in knowing more about the population of England and having it by your elbow in the pub ready for any questions that might come up, I found England's population, a history since the Doomsday Survey by Andrew Hind very handy. 
by the way, I've also come to realise that I'm a bit rubbish at making book recommendations or indeed referencing the proper historians on whose shoulders I stand, so I'll do more of that, maybe more in the episode notes on the website, where, by the way, you will now also find the transcripts. Ha! You could read it all as well as hear it. You'd have to be a glutton for punishment, but they are there should you want them. The question then is why this population growth occurred and why this growth stopped in 1640. I realise this is already beyond my chronological brief, but this is interesting not only in itself, but because it gives an insight into marriage practice and the correlation between population and everyday life. It could be that the growth slowed down in the 1640s because of mortality crises, so positive checks in the rather cold and functional parlance of Thomas Malthus. Famine and epidemic diseases still stalk the land of England scythe in hand. There are famines in the 1530s, 1550s, 1590s. There are a couple of major national epidemics, a flu crisis in 1557 to 1560 and another crisis, typhus, in 1587-8. The bubonic plague is ever-present, although now it's more localised, particularly in London, but by no means exclusively. Actually, the crisis in 1557-60 is a genuine whopper. Mostly in crisis years, something like one-fifth of parishes are affected. In these years, it was as high as 40% of parishes. The death rate for crisis years was generally around 30 deaths per thousand. In 1558-9, to it was 65 deaths per thousand. So it was hideous. As a point of reference, by the way, just for interest, today's death rate in England is around 8 per thousand. Anyway, so population growth could have come to an end because there was a problem with mortality. But what about fertility, the birth rate? Maybe the growth was caused by a rising birth rate, which came to an end for some reason in 1640. The key to understanding fertility lies in love and marriage, which I'm told go together like horse and carriage, but we have no reliable documentary evidence for that statement. Well, okay, it lies in family and marriage. What's love? What has love got to do with it? It was once thought that early modern families would prioritise the production of as many children as possible so that children would therefore be available for helping on the farm and providing an economic benefit and indeed security for old age in what was a largely rural economy. It was thought that the family was large and complex, multi-generational, horizontally broad, so big extended family, cousins, grandparents, all hanging around the household. It was thought that people were getting married young to maximise their sprog production capability. And after all, that's not a surprising conclusion. We've heard of all those super young betrothals and marriages among the smart set and the nobility. However, it turns out not to be the case for the vast majority. In fact, the early modern household in England turned out to be quite small. 4.5 people on average. No jokes about the 0.5 person. Only 15% of households were in fact extended beyond the nuclear family. And all of this analysis, by the way, excludes domestic servants. Marriage age then tended also to be surprisingly late, between the ages of 26 to 27 for men and 24 to 26 for women. This model conforms to something called a neo-local model, a phrase seemingly calculated to sound at once impressive and meaningless. 
Also, the use of neo is normally insulting, isn't it? Neoliberal, neoconservative, neo-dog walker, that sort of thing. Well, neo-local model is neutral in this case. What it means is that children are expected to leave home before they have a family. So these attributes, a small nuclear household, the practice of setting up a separate household as part of getting married, these have been neatly packaged together under the label of the Northwest European marriage pattern. How neat is the phrase Northwest European marriage pattern? Historians have always been natural marketeers. As the name suggests, this is not just an English phenomenon, but it is only partially a European phenomenon. So, for example, in Russia, children would usually marry and stay within the family home. In Italy, households were usually more complex. This seemingly straightforward and unexceptional idea that children need to leave home to have a family turns out to be anything other than dull and boring. It turns out to be absolutely copper-bottomed, 24-carat dynamite. It is dynamite because it links living standards and fertility, the economy directly to fertility and birth rates. So, let us say that times are good. In an early modern context, this means that food is plentiful and therefore food is cheap. Land is easily available because population is low. Employment is easy to find because population is low so labour is scarce. And real wages rise too because you can charge more for your labour, you can negotiate. Rents are also low because landowners need to compete to attract scarce tenants. And so, in general, living standards rise. That means that children can leave the nest young to get married, whether or not they take their laundry with them. And so average marriage age falls. Families start having children younger. They have more time to produce children in their lifetime. They can support more. And so population rises. This is where we can go back to Malthus and start talking about preventative checks. Because the reverse is also true. If times are hard, if food becomes scarce because there are too many people eating it, but we can get down to Tesco's, prices will rise. Real wages will fall. It will be harder to land a tenancy because you are competing with others. And the landlord can charge more anyway, so your standard of living will be lower. So, it is harder for young people to start a new household. Hey presto, marriages start later. There are fewer children in each marriage. An average delay of just two years in marriage age will have, for reasons which are far too mathematically complicated for me to contemplate, a significant impact on birth rate. Somehow, it is as beautiful as the dawn chorus, or the morning sun rising over the Dulwich sewage works. I am sometimes excited when I learn something. This is one of those times. Share my joy. So, let us turn to the actualité then. First of all, if this is the model, why did it not seem to work between 1350 and 1520? Does this invalidate the elegance of said model? After all, the 15th century was supposed to be the golden age of the working man. Low population, high real wages, tenants scarce, all those good things which should lead to population increase, as described. Unfortunately, as a historian called Sylvia Thrupp rather acerbically noted, it was also the golden age of the bacteria, which is a very good line, though not one I'd imagine you'd have enjoyed very much being on the sharp end of it in the 15th century. Epidemics were very frequent, is the point. Mortality was very high. 
In Essex, it's calculated that the average lifespan fell to 32 to 36 years of age, which is seriously not very long to raise a family. It appears to have been the other side of the equation, the mortality rate, that provided the positive check side that depressed population growth before 1520. What is less clear is why mortality rates were less severe in the 16th century and therefore released population growth. One theory points out that population growth, with the exception of London, was a largely rural phenomenon and epidemic disease seemed to strike with less regularity and severity in the countryside in the 16th century. Either way, average ages of death rose to 38 to 41 years. The influenza epidemic was a mortality crisis of major proportions, as we've said, but it was quite exceptional. The death rate in the worst year of that crisis was more than double the average. However it happened, freed from the shackles of death, population began to rise. In the wake of population increase came its handmaiden, price inflation. It is worth emphasising again just what a shock the idea of inflation was to the early modern world. People were used to the odd price hike every year or so, or fall, depending on the quality of the harvest. But the sustained rise? That was a real poser. There were some contemporary theories, and the favourite was greed. Farmers and grain merchants were just charging too much. People were putting private profit against the general good of the Commonwealth. For many Protestants of Edward's reign in particular, it was a betrayal of everything the Reformation stood for. For men like Hugh Latimer, the Reformation represented a spiritual awakening, the birth of a Christian Commonwealth in which the members of each estate should enjoy the reward equally. And yet, all they saw around them were rising prices, and without any economic theory to help them, they concluded that it could be nothing but greed. did not help, of course, that the proceeds of the reduction of the excessive wealth of the church were going into the prosecution of war and the pockets of landowners, rather than in building the new Jerusalem. And meanwhile, all around, the numbers of the poor grew. Together, these commentators like Latimer have latterly become known as Commonwealth's men, and they reflected a broader belief in a communitarian society where all should work together for the common good according to their role. Their rhetoric and fury filled the air of the commotion time in 1549, condemning the insatiable thirst of greeds of men by such as pass more on the world than God, more on their private profit than on the common wealth. Where, was the point, were the expected fruits of the Reformation? The other contemporary theory, and a rather longer-lasting one maybe, was that the price inflation of the 16th century was occasioned by an inflow of bullion from the New World. It's a theory that, while of long provenance, has caused many a furrowed brow. The thinking seems to be now that bullion was probably pretty short in Europe anyway, and that the amount incoming could not have caused such a rise all on its own, but maybe it was a contributor. But rising population, creating increased demand, producing price inflation, now seems to be the front runner. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, what did this mean for society? What it seems to have meant, if a super, super summary is called for, 
is that they were winners and they were losers. And the big differentiator between the two was land. If you had land and you had enough nows to take advantage, then I don't care if you're young or old, let the good times roll. If you're a landless wage labourer, making ends meet would prove very, very tough. More so by the end of the century, but by Edward VI time also. At the core of it was an inflexible medieval economy which simply had no way of expanding to take account of and integrate all these new joiners in the population growth. That's the super summary. However, this is where we open the barrel of qualifications, which emphasises the variety of experiences and which, in looking at local experiences, has uncovered a few problems with the grand narratives. Anyway, grand narratives are not in vogue these days. Having said that, there is a grand narrative about the period in which we are situated now, the growth or birth of capitalism. Obviously, in 1550, we are at the very start of that process, simply at the confluence of the acheron and the stick, staring into the mouth of the dark cavern of the underworld and contemplating paying the ferryman. And yet, since this is one of the most seismic shifts in English history, we should at least acknowledge it and continue to reference it as we walk cautiously towards Charon. In the house of many rooms, which was the rise of capitalism, a traditional part of the agricultural story is the conversion of England from a society of small family farmers in 1350 to one based predominantly on large farms employing wage labourers. But what is now less clear is when it all happened, since some of the individual narratives have, as I say, been undermined. So, for example, it used to be thought that crop yields in times medieval essentially sucked, and enclosure and engrossment of farms was an essential driver to improve them. Now, we're not so sure. Medieval yields could be pretty high. Yields in the domain land of the Dukes of Norfolk, for example, were not bettered until 1700. It's now accepted that the rural population was strongly proletarianised by 1525, and maybe even by 1381. So by 1525, it looks as though about half of all English families relied on wage labour to support themselves, whether working on the farm or taking part in rural industry. And then enclosure, which causes so much protest during the century. But in numerical terms, the amount of land enclosed by 1500 was about 45%, and only a further 2% was actually enclosed in the 16th century. This is the first mention of enclosure, and it'll crop up all over the place like a skin complaint, so let me very quickly define it. For a large swathe of England, the traditional farming method was to hold large open fields for arable production. People would own or rent a greater or smaller amount of land within that in strips, but all would also have some common rights to supplement those strips of land. Access to pasture, rights to take a certain amount of wood, graze pigs, and so on. Enclosure was the process whereby those large open fields were enclosed and divvied up in coherent units between the inhabitants of the village, according to how much they'd previously held in their strips. It might also include engrossment, whereby landowners bought different lots and added them together to make larger farms. Crucially, although there would be compensation, common rights would disappear. Now, I think I have spoken about this so much that you will all know most of it, but just, you know, sorry and all, but just making sure we're all on the same page, singing from the same hymn sheep, smoking fat cigars, that sort of thing. So, 
Back to the don't assume point. The news is that we have to be careful in making generalisations. There are so many ways in which experience might vary according to situation or location. However, since I don't have five years to write an in-depth podcast on the 16th century, I'm in fact now going to generalise for England. But you have been warned. In detail, it's complicated. And in detail, it varies a lot depending on where you lived and the landscape you inhabited. So you have been warned. Don't come to me with your finger in your eye telling me that this theory doesn't work for the working communities of Driffield. I don't want to hear it. So, granted that we need to be mindful of differences... Before we generalise, we should at very least try to think about how changes affected different orders in society. And as I say, from this point on, having issued the warning, I'm now going to generalise at gold medal level. As an overview, it's helpful to return to the idea of Commonwealth to understand how people saw community around them. I believe I introduced Edmund Dudley to you many moons ago, one half of the Empsom and Dudley team that implemented Henry VII's gum-bleeding policies and who would be summarily in receipt of the chop when his son Henry VIII came to the throne. So, with a sense of déjà vu washing around my ears, I will keep the summary of Dudley's work, The Tree of Commonwealth, brief, since it's carved into your minds in all probability anyway. Essentially, Dudley's concept of society was a tripartite one, and quite traditional. Clergy, chivalry, and the common people. The underlying principle was that every order and every household and every person had their role from monarch to the meanest of their subjects, and the failure to fulfil their role meant chaos. In there is an essentially conservative view of the world, small c, obviously, which ran in the very water of society. Two other points to make. The concept was therefore very communitarian. Everyone had responsibilities to everybody else, no matter what your estate in life. But it was not in any way egalitarian. I suspect that hardly needs to be said. The commoner was not to presume above their own degree, nor to grudge nor murmur against the fact that they were born to live in labour and pain, and most part of their time with the sweat of their face. So, they have to suck it up in brief. Dudley would have recognised that the society he lived in was however not as simple as it was in the days of King Alfred, who had used broadly the same divisions. By 1500, England's economy was integrated across towns and regions with international and national trading links and multiple industries. But despite this, Tudor society was hostile to the notion of unrestricted individual freedom in commercial affairs, and the idea of material gain as an end in itself was anathema, or it was anathema in theory. Commercial affairs, in theory, should be subordinated to ethical ends. Since Alfred's time, new ideas had entered into English political thought with the ideas of the new learning, the Renaissance, or should I say, some old bottles had been found in the wine cellar of civilization and had been reopened. At the core of the school curriculum were the writings of the Roman statesman Marcus Tullius Cicero, which carried with it republican notions of liberty and deliberative counsel, and a deep suspicion of autocrats. Between 1485 and 1530, these liberty ideas became integrated into the monarchical tradition, and that produced the Commonwealth idea of a communitarian and conciliar monarchy, in which monarchs were appointed by God, but appointed by God to defend the common good. So that's a neat combination. The holders of public office became officers of the Commonwealth. 
and the importance of lesser governors to implement policy and dispense justice was central to the effective running of the state. So lesser governors will be critical to understand local society in early modern times. The gentry, yeomanry, people who took the roles of the parish governance both translate power down from central government but also convey desire and demands up from the village to Westminster. So, the Renaissance confers a responsibility to the king to defend the common good. It emphasised delegation of powers from centre to locality and the role of law was even more enhanced, which took some doing in England, and emphasised that even the monarch was bound by that law. It is worth taking a little shimmy into a bit of constitutional history about the role of the king. It is commonly and casually assumed on the intertubes that monarchs like Henry VIII were tyrants. The word is banded about with gay abandon by all and sundry. And I understand why. He was a nasty, bullying piece of work. And yet, as I have been at pains to note, even he operated within a parliamentary framework and within the bounds of law. He was seen as his most powerful as the king in parliament. And he is therefore not really worthy of the word tyrant. In the later 15th century, a famous figure of English law, one-time Lord Chief Justice John Fortescue, wrote a number of legal texts, one of them called The Commendation of the Laws of England, written somewhere between 1468 and 1471. I'm going to talk about this now, and I feel a slight surge of panic, since I know there are many lawyers who are kind enough to listen to this podcast, and I imagine a general leaning forward in seats, the sound of sharpening pencils as I use the name Fortescue. Along with Glanville and Blackstone, he's one of those names. So, I'll keep it brief and then duck. Here's Fortescue on the power of the king. Nor can a king, who is head of the body politic, change the laws thereof, nor take from the people what is theirs by right against their consents. For he is appointed to protect his subjects in their lives properties and laws. For this very end and purpose, he has the delegation of power from the people, and he has no just claim to any other power but this. Immortal words, ladies and gentlemen, he has delegation from the power of the people. According to Eric Ives, Fortescue had in mind to contrast the absolutism of French kings with English kings, who therefore exercised royal authority within political parameters. Nonetheless, Fortescue was also to be used, slightly anachronistically, during the Civil War to justify placing further constitutional restrictions on the king. But that is a story for another day, another day, further in the future. For the moment, sufficient to say that the idea of power deriving from the people and law requiring their consent was alive and kicking in late 15th century England. Before the legal letters of objection hit me, let me then quote from Thomas Smith, an English scholar, parliamentarian and diplomat, who wrote in the 1560s another one of these books about the operation of society. This one was called De Republica Anglorum, The Manner of Government or Policy of the Realm of England. Here is his summary of the Commonwealth. A Commonwealth is called a society or common doing of a multitude of free men, collected together and united by common accord and covenants amongst themselves for the conservation of themselves in peace as in war. The main thing about this quote to emphasise is just how communitarian it is. 
The other is the strength of custom and order which naturally, it assumes, lay behind the conservation of the community. So, economic and social change, any kind of change really, was challenging to the prevailing mindset. So often public policy, such as a labour regulation or the sumptuary laws defining what you could wear, felt like society desperately trying to stuff a stream of expanding genies back into a very small bottle to try and hold back the time of economic change and pressures generated by population growth. In what follows, we're not going to bother too much with the chivalry, knights, gentry, peers, because we're always talking about their goings-on, though obviously we may have occasion to mention them. No, we are going to focus on the rest of us, the commoners, with apologies for any peers out there listening. This was a group which in itself was in no way homogenous. Traditionally, we can divide them into groups, yeomen, husbandmen, craftsmen, cottagers and labourers. Boiling it down to the very bare essentials, the yeoman was a substantial farmer and was a big fish in their own particular pool, and that pool was the parish, since gentry might frequently be absentee. We will definitively talk at some point in one of these episodes about the English parish. The husbandman was a small holder with a bit of land but farming it generally speaking on the basis of the labour that their own family could produce rather than employing wage labourers, with the exception of domestic servants of course. The husbandman would expect to produce a small surplus every year. Another group are village craftsmen and tradesmen who are to be found in most communities. They could be very different in terms of wealth, so millers, blacksmiths or butchers were often men of substance. Others like weavers, tailors or alehouse keepers could be quite poor, but it varied. Also, they'd very often be involved in farming in a small way as well. They'd have a few acres. When we talk about cottages and labourers, though, we are now talking about the landless, people largely dependent on wage labour and a bit of rural industry on the side. Their lives were intrinsically precarious, even more so than the rest, because you could put aside the idea that these were folks with a full-time job at a fixed wage. That would be relatively rare and a privileged position. Granted, 25% of the population were servants at one time or another where there would be a wage, but that tended to be a young person's game and a temporary thing. For the most part, cottagers and labourers' work would be on-off, employed for a particular job and then let go, and overall it could be very seasonal, so everyone would hope to get work at harvest time, for example, everyone would probably struggle in the depth of winter. They'd have a small pot of land to produce veggies on and so on, and that would help. They may also have common rights to help them make do, like some taking of wood. The normal rule there was that they could cut what they could reach or take fallen wood, but the manorial court would be very quick to deal with any complaints they were taking more than their fair share. But essentially, they would have times of plenty and times of dearth, and they would need to bridge the gap between the two. And their options were a bit limited. As social legislation throughout the period would constantly reiterate from Edward IV to Elizabeth, people were meant to stay on their own parish and make their lives there. Hence, the fear and terror with which vagrancy was received was a breaking of the social rules. The phrase I like is makeshift and mend. This might be the motto of cottagers and labouring families constantly making do, finding opportunities, making the most of whatever they could find. An immediate point to link to that then is that enclosures could make the difference between survival and famine for some of those folks. So 
Let's go back to that stat I mentioned above, that 45% of the land was already enclosed by the 16th century, and only 2% was enclosed in the century. And yet, there is all this trouble going on. Thomas More and his people eating sheep, Wolsey and his laws trying to stop enclosure, commotion time, rebel and revolution. The squaring of that circle of why when so little land was enclosed was there so much fuss may well lie in all those things, the growth in population, the rising prices, the precarious life of the cottager and labourer. Because while 2% might be a relatively small amount, unlike the 45% which had gone before, that 2% could have been in highly contentious situations. It could have been situations that pushed people in the village over the line from coping to not coping, from eating to starving. I can imagine you asking at this point how many people we're talking about in each of these groups. How does it break down? Although the social and economic makeup of different parishes varied wildly according to where you are, let's take a couple examples and try anyway. Highly is a village in Shropshire. It's unenclosed at the time, so based on an open field system with common rights. A study of the Henrician subsidy of 1543 suggests four social strata with no resident gentry. At the top of that, those strata were six large farmers who controlled maybe half the land of the settlement. Let's call them yeomen for the sake of argument. Then below them was a larger group of smaller farmers with more modest 20 to acre holdings. And they probably made up 30% of the village population. Let's call them husbandmen for the sake of. Then there's a group of craftsmen and cottage dwellers still well off enough to pay said Henrician subsidy. And then there is the remaining 25% of the community who were day labourers and domestic servants. In Turling and Essex, the other example, in 1524-5, there were nine very large farmers, so that's 12% of the village. There were 28 lesser yeomen, substantial husbandmen and prosperous craftsmen, so that's about 37% of the village. There were 18 smaller husbandmen and craftsmen, 24%, and then 21 cottagers and labourers, which is about 28% of the village. So you get the general idea, although that is clearly a blizzard of statistics you're never going to remember. And again, it would vary. But from these two examples, about 25 to 28% were wage labourers. So we have our ranks of villagers. What's the story of how the economic changes affected them each? We shall have to return to that next time, sadly, gentle listeners, and that will be in two weeks. But meanwhile, do not forget the survey at thehistoryofengland.co.uk if you can spare just a few minutes. And don't forget the chance to win an Elizabeth I silver sixpence or an Elizabeth I silver penny. So thank you so much for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Good luck and have a great fortnight. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.